Books. 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 Hello, and welcome to Didn't Read It, the podcast that loves farts. I am your host, Grace Todd, a writer, editor, book gremlin, and and with me today is new friend of the pod, Marilyn Drew Nagy. Hey, Drew. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Hi. I didn't prep this part at all. I am a local journalist. I was with RVA Mag for a long time. Not anymore. I now write for the auricular.com. That's A-U-R-I-C-U-L-A-R. It's my, my friend Doug's website. Still writing about shows once a week and doing several other jobs, trying somewhat in vain to pay my bills. Yeah, that's the uh, the current fee for existing is the... <laughs> One of my friend's moms apparently recently was like, why do all of your friends have like three jobs? And she was like, mom, (laughs) because we have to. I was really upset when I failed to get a fifth job recently because it had a possibility of me actually having a little bit of spending money at the end of paying the bills. And so now I'm thrown back into the situation where I'm operating slightly at a loss. And it's just like, oh, why didn't you guys give me this job? I'd do so good at it. You're like, I'm so nice. Yeah, Please hire me. Yeah, yeah. That's about the size of it. And that's why we curl up with oldie timey literature that makes us feel better about mm. ourselves. Is that is that what it's doing? Oh, it's uh, Ulysses is, is <laughs> not a book that's going to. I I don't know how it's going to make you feel about yourself. Maybe sorry you read it. Uh, 15 years ago, I was in a book club and we were reading the same kind of stuff you do. Old classics that we've always wondered about but never got around to. And I was the only person in the book club who liked this book at all. And I loved it. It's always funny when you show up to a group thing like that and you're the only one and you're like, no, it's it's good. It's, it's, I promise. You guys, it's actually great. Why didn't you like it? <laughs> and sometimes if you stew on that situation long enough, you wind up starting a whole podcast about it. Yeah, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Seems like a seems like a good way to work through some of that. So as we have hinted at today, you are telling me mm-hmm. in a very exciting role reversal mm-hmm. about which book by which author? Uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. Let's just get into it. What do you know about Ulysses by James Joyce? Okay, so I have read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Okay, that's better than a lot of people are doing. Loved it. And I read, I think, a couple of his short stories. From like, the Dubliners? Yeah. Yeah, everybody's read, yeah, everybody's read The Dead. Yeah, everyone mm-hmm. has to read The Dead. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure if you embark upon any kind of formal education in this country, at some point someone just physically hits you with The Dead, but printed out and just rolled up. Yep. And Ulysses is one of those books that I feel vaguely guilty about because obviously, look at what we're doing. And this is one of those ones that 
always comes up Mm -hmm. if you start talking about classic literature. And every time I just get really quiet and kind of like, I just, you know. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, for a long time, I had this book on my list of prison novels, which was a list (laughs) I had in my mind of books that seem extremely difficult and like I'd need a lot of time to absorb them. And I always thought, well, if they ever put me in prison for a long period of time, I'll get somebody to bring me Ulysses and War and Peace and... God, I don't even remember what else was on the list, but things that I still have not read except this book. Yeah. And so you were swimming against the current Mm. in your book club. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. But so let's start with the basics. There are three main characters in this book that you need to know. There is Stephen Daedalus, who you will remember from a portrait of the artist as a young man. Yes. This book starts with Stephen. It basically starts as a sequel to that book and then yeah and then at a certain point uh leopold bloom and his wife molly show up and they are the other two really important characters in here now leopold is all of these characters are taking the place of characters from the odyssey by homer uh that epic poem from ancient Greece that tells us debatably untrue history slash total myths You know, where was Troy? They don't know. (laughs) Anyway, the point being that all of these characters correspond to somebody from the original Odyssey. And so this book is one day in the life. It begins with a few chapters about Stephen in the early part of the day. Then it goes back to the beginning of the day in the main part, which part two is probably 75, 80% of the book. And that's all about Leopold. And then at the end, we get Stephen and Leopold returning home. And then we get a long chapter from Molly. But wait till we get there. Wait. So just to be clear, Mm. for people who are not in the room with us, Mm. that is a that is a four inch thick book. You Mm. you could commit a murder with that book. Yeah, this is this is the edition I bought. And I'm going to say this. I bought the Oxford World Classics edition. That is the facsimile of the original 1922 Shakespeare and Company press and it has it's 980 pages long i think about 730 are the book and the rest are footnotes at the end and actually it also has about you know those books that start with x and xi and Uh all that yeah it goes to about page 60 in roman numerals before page one so this is over a thousand pages sure but that is you're telling me that the events contained within this again homicide potential home sure that's one day yes yes (laughs) correct well how oh well you know joyce said that he wanted it to to act as a real-time map of dublin when he wrote it and it sort of does and the entire day is the 16th of june 1904 many things happen in the book that really happened on the 16th of June, 1904 in Dublin or were in the newspaper. Oh, this was in the newspaper from New York. And if you go back and check the footnotes, the footnotes tell you that, oh yeah, that article really ran in the New York, whatever the heck on June 15th of 1904. And this was a disaster that had occurred three days earlier in a Harbor in New York. That's, I don't quite remember the details, but that's really something that's in here he was really shooting for verisimilitude to the point where he extensively fact-checked this wow okay i am beginning to understand the reputation that this book holds kind of in the zeitgeist yeah like that's one of those clearly he's proved that you can do it 
should you have well considering the massive influence ulysses has had on the next hundred years of literature i would say he has stood the test of time this book is not easy one of the main things about this book is that it began really literary modernism. There was a little bit of that already going on. Joyce was a big fan of Henrik Ibsen, who was a late 19th century playwright from somewhere in Europe, Germany. I'm not sure. He's Nordic. Yeah, okay, okay. Either way, other people were doing it, but Joyce was really taking it to a next level. You will hear people refer to this novel as being stream of consciousness. It's more like an internal monologue of whichever character we're reading about at that moment. We'll get there. The main thing you need to know is that the use of real names, real locations, real events, all of that stuff was unprecedented. People did not want that from fiction before this. They thought it was somehow wrong. And they're like, I want to escape from 1904, not dwell on it. A hundred percent. That was the theory. And there's a lot about real life that comes through in this book that created a massive amount of trouble for the book. It was the subject of massive obscenity cases. Again, we'll get there. All of this is just a preview of coming attractions. The chapters are, each of them is based, at least metaphorically, on a chapter of the Odyssey, but they're not in the order that the Odyssey is. The end is at the end. But beyond that, no. Uh, the main point of them is to kind of metaphorically point to the events that actually happen in that chapter, which they're referred to as episodes. Each one is very different. Many times he adopts a particular form within it. We're going to have one that is based around newspaper headlines and stories of the day. We're going to have one that is Joyce walking us all the way through the history of writing and rhetorical use of words going back to Latin in the Roman era all the way to it ends with a bunch of slang. It is wild the amount of stuff he was trying to do. Not a man lacking in literary ambition. My goodness, no. That's one way to go. You know, if you have big ideas, you're just like, I'm going to cram all of the biggest ideas into this one giant book. Yeah. And then I'll write some other books that are a little bit more <laughs> normal. Well, do you know about the book he wrote after this? The only thing he wrote after this? Finnegan's Wake, which makes this seem like a dime novel. Yeah, he, 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 that's, a, that's another five-part episode of Didn't Read It that someone else is going to have to host because I cannot I cannot with Finnegan's Wake. It's too much. I mean, if we really want to be properly Joycean, as far as I understand it from, mm -hmm. from what you've said to this point, the only way to really do a Finnegan's Wake podcast would just be to read Finnegan's Wake into a microphone mm -hmm. in real time. And then try to figure out what each word and phrase means because they are written in this way that, gosh, let me, let me just drop this here and we'll move on because we can't get into Finnegan's Wake. They're written in a way that contains puns and sort of he uses misspellings to communicate a variety of different words with one word and you could piece out what he's doing with the narrative, but there are many hidden meanings in each individual word and phrase and the book is another doorstop like this one. I am simultaneously impressed and a little terrified now. Oh yes, I'm totally terrified of it and we'll never tackle it, but as far as Ulysses goes, uh, what I wanted to say is I've listened to all your podcasts up until now, and they are you telling the story of what happens. This is not that. There, <laughs> there is no possibility of me telling you the story of what happens in Ulysses in any kind of a meaningful manner. I could tell you the plot 
And first of all, somebody else is going to be like, she got these eight things wrong. The second thing is that the map is not the territory. It comes in no way close to resembling the experience of reading this book. It'd be like me telling you what a song sounds like. You don't really know until you hear the song. This story is the same deal. You won't really know unless you go there. I figured eventually we would hit something that was just unsynopsizable. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of synopsizable, but at the same time, so much is going to be lost. That's fair. It's an adventure we're taking together. Indeed. Hand in hand, wading Mm -hmm. through Ulysses. And you too, dear listener. So in the words of Samuel Beckett, let's get to it then. Hell yeah. Okay. The first three episodes are contained in a part called the Telemachia, which is based around Telemachus, the son of Odysseus. Stephen Daedalus is playing that part for our purposes here in Ulysses. And this just focuses on what he's got going on that morning, June 16th, 1904. The first chapter is called Telemachus. It's a metaphor relating to the part of the Odyssey where the son, Telemachus, is looking for information about where his father has gone because there are evil suitors trying to win his mother away. He's picking fights with all the dudes who want to horn in on his father's sort of rightful place. Mm, And they want to kill him for it. And he's like, I've got to get my dad back here. Well, this is how the thing begins, but that's, again, sort of only a metaphor. Let me read to you the way this book starts. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown ungirdled was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, Introibo ad altare di. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch. Come up, you fearful Jesuit. Solemnly, he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country, and the awaking mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Daedalus, he bent toward him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Daedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bowl smartly. Back to barracks, he said sternly. He added in a preacher's tone, For this, O dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine, body and soul and blood and ounds. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents. One moment. A little trouble about those white corpuscles. Silence all. What's happening here? That was the reaction. You you said that, and I had that immediate sensation of being called on by a professor when I hadn't done the reading. Just like, oh, I don't, oh, God. Yeah, no, no, no worries. I don't really (laughs) completely understand it, but this was what greeted your average reader in 1922, picking this up, which your average reader didn't get it. It wasn't published in an English-speaking country for over 10 years, but we'll get there. The issue is that being thrown into the middle of action in medias res, as they say, yes. 
is totally unprecedented at this point. This is an early modernist work. People were not used to this. They're like, who's Buck Mulligan? Who's Stephen Daedalus? What are they doing? Right. Well, and we'd only we'd only recently left behind epistolary yes. novels. Yeah, everything had to be framed, especially all of those hoary Victorian... For sure. You know, everything has to start with, hello, dear reader, here is a young lady. She is 23, she has blonde hair, and now we will tell you a story about her. Yes. And I don't think I had realized that this was where that pivot happened. And I don't think I'd ever thought about how startling that pivot must have been. The first time I ever saw Halloween 1978 starring Jamie Lee Curtis, I was like, oh, yeah, now they're going to do this thing. Uh-huh. And it was like my 500th horror movie. And my friend Brandon's going, but you don't understand. No one had ever done this in 1978. This like, is the same sort of thing. This is the thing that did it for the first time. It's boring because it succeeded. <laughs> yes, correct. 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 That you couldn't. I couldn't have said that better. What we have here is the beginning of the day at a Martello Tower. Let's see. It's at Sandy Cove. Southeast of Dublin, uh, south of the Liffey, along the east coast of Ireland. And this, a Martello Tower, is a defensive structure that was designed to defend a coastline from sea invaders. They had largely gone out of use for that by 1904. So James Joyce and his friend Oliver St. John Gogarty lived in a Martello Tower in 1904, in this exact same spot, Buck Mulligan and Stephen Daedalus are Oliver St. John Gogarty and James Joyce. It's the correspondence is exact. Later in the book, Buck Mulligan reads a poem that Oliver St. John Gogarty wrote. Oh, so, wow. yeah, it's totally exact. They are tense because a British guy named Haynes has moved into the tower as a third roommate and Daedalus does not like Haynes. And Daedalus, like many characters we will encounter in this book, is a Fenian, a Unionist, however you want to call it. This is at a time when the British still have fully colonized Ireland. Right. And they want their freedom. Yeah, you said British guy, and I was like, oh, that's not going to go well. <laughs> mm, correct. So there are issues there, and I would say that Haynes comes across as uptight and full of crap pretty much the whole time and you can see why there's tension but there's also real social political issues at work here but there are some interesting things that occur oh i want to mention this that tower the real tower that james joyce used to live in it's now a james joyce museum oh mm -hmm. that's fun now mm -hmm. i now i want to go to there go on june 16th bloomsday i it's, have a feeling it will be a little crowded yeah it's a huge holiday in dublin but Basically, we have Haynes here, and this is the point where Stephen really gets annoyed. They all walk down to swim. Daedalus doesn't. He's, he keeps his clothes on. But Buck Mulligan gets naked and gets in the water there on the Irish Sea. And Stephen and Haynes are speaking on the shore. And I'm going to go ahead and read you a little bit of this. After all, Haynes began... Stephen turned and saw the cold gaze which had measured him was not all unkind. After all, I should think you are able to free yourself. You are your own master, it seems to me. I'm the servant of two masters, Stephen said. An English and an Italian. Italian, Haynes said. A crazy queen, old and jealous, kneeled down before me. And a third, Stephen said, there is, who wants me for odd jobs. Italian, Haynes said again. 
What do you mean? <laughs> the Imperial British State, Stephen answered, his color rising, and the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. Haynes detached from his underlip some fibers of tobacco before he spoke. I could quite understand that, he said calmly. An Irishman must think that, I dare say. We feel in England that we have treated you rather unfairly. It seems history is to blame. Skip a little bit forward. Of course, I'm a Britisher, Haynes' voice said, and I feel as one. I don't want to see my country fall into the hands of German Jews either. That's our national problem, I'm afraid, just now. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. You're going to hear that a bunch from characters who are sympathetic to the British cause in particular. And of course, one of the main things that makes Leopold Bloom's perspective so interesting is that he is Jewish. He is a Jewish man born and raised in Dublin, lived there all his life. And he married a Dublin girl, Molly Bloom, who used to be Molly Tweedy. And we will see over the course of the novel, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but whatever. We will see that a lot of the Catholic Irish, uh, my daddy was Irish and so was his great grandpappy guys, are all really annoyed that Molly married a Jewish guy. Yeah, I mean, this is in the middle of a rising tide of anti-Semitism across Europe. Oh, for sure. Writ large. And so I'm guessing Joyce was acutely aware of that. I mean, mm. he's addressing it very intentionally, I guess mm -hmm. is what I'm asking saying i think so what is really sad is i feel like he is completely unconscious to anti-black racism which shows up at several minor points in this novel not much because it's ireland in 1904 i'm the book's from 1922 but he's trying to capture a moment 18 years in the past and there's not much interaction with black people in the book but every once in a while there's black face i mean he throws the n-word around a few times in real gross fashion it's a problematic book and you've got to be prepared for the fact this is literally 100 years old so <laughs> that that's something to keep in mind and i don't like those parts uh but they're there one of the I, well, I was going to say funniest, but funniest probably isn't the right word. Mm. But one of the oddest things about reading, especially literature from before the 1930s, mm -hmm. especially British literature and Irish literature, is out of nowhere, you'll get this weird anti-black jump scare mm. that has nothing to do with anything else. And then it's gone again. Like, yep. There aren't actually black characters a lot of the time, but there'll just be this weird drive by where you're like, why? Where did that <laughs> yeah, did we need that? Damn it, James. You were so close, but... Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So getting back to our actual plot, basically Daedalus decides upon leaving that morning, like, I'm not coming back. I've got to find a new place to live. I cannot live under the roof with Haynes anymore. You know, his British snobbery, the whole blaming history for the treatment of the Irish. It's like, my dude, history didn't do it. You did in the past but that doesn't mean it's history that means it's you it, an even funnier thing to try and do from the perspective of 1904 <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah we're, we're still colonizing you but i guess history's to blame oh we can't just free you we couldn't do that like we only starved you to death on purpose like a couple generations ago it's fine let it go there is much talk uh, throughout this book of Irish rebellion, there's much talk of how many people should live in Ireland versus how many people do, because at this point, Ireland's lost the majority of its population to emigration to America because of the potato famine. Yeah. Didn't I Ireland's population only recently made it back to like pre-famine levels? I can believe that. I believe they were at four or five million and it dropped to one million. Insane. Yeah. So Stephen said, F this, I'm out. 
Yes. I cannot do this anymore. Yeah, but it's James Joyce, so it's sort of not that clear. But you can tell he's done. Now, that's the end of our first episode. Our second episode, Nestor, which the Homer correspondence here is that Nestor is a horse master who Telemachus goes to for news of Odysseus. And Nestor has no news, but he tells him a bunch of post-Iliad gossip. Oh, this guy's in jail, and this guy got killed, and these people got together. Post-Iliad gossip is such a good phrase. (laughs) Yeah, that's really what the correspondence here is. And it's in reference to Stephen's boss at the school where he teaches, uh, Mr. DC. We will meet Mr. DC momentarily. And it's early. It's like 10 a.m. So, I mean, June 16th, I figured this is close to, if not the last day of school, Stephen really seems uh, a bit perfunctory with his teaching. He's kind of like, oh, and the kids aren't really paying attention. He's like, yeah, fair enough. So he's ready to get out of there, and he's just thinking, DC pays me today. I got to go get my money. I got to go get my money because I have so much to do, and I'm trying to find a new place to live. So uh, he's done with teaching, and the kids go outside to play field hockey. They are little monsters. They're screaming and yelling. But one little kid comes up and asks him for help. A little boy named Sergeant. I'm assuming it's his last name. And Stephen just ponders how much like himself as a child this kid is. James Joyce, and therefore assumedly Stephen Daedalus, was 22 on June 16th, 1904. So we are to assume this is early 20s. You know, you're a lot more of an adult in 1904 if you're 22 than you are today. Today, they're probably trying to find a way to like make it so you can't drink or smoke any until you're 25. <laughs> I think that is actually the plan. Yeah, we're just trying to infantilize people for longer and longer periods of their actual healthy upright lifespan in order to aid the coming of the gerontocracy which let's not kid ourselves is already here at any rate um (laughs) that was such an efficient little aside i am no stranger to slipping all of the good politics into this podcast but that was so um so tidily done thank you hey no problem it's a nice little package journalism is like this you learn to do that you learn how you're like i've got half a sentence if i want to make a comment here and i'm just gonna do it i'm just gonna hire you to show up at the end of every episode and just be like and also the country is disintegrating bye Mm -hmm. yeah if you pay me actual actual money to do that i'll be here every time Every time. Uh, Okay, so what we learn through... A lot of this novel is told through internal monologue, as I mentioned previously. This is Daedalus's internal monologue, which is a bit more organized and also a bit more high-flown than that of Leopold Bloom. But what we learn is his mother recently died. He's still grieving. He's alienated from his family to some extent, though there is an uneasy piece. It really depends on which of his many siblings we're talking about, which I believe he's the only boy, perhaps. And then he has several sisters. We will meet them later. Uh, We also will meet Simon, his father, later. But uh, it seems he's alienated from the family to an extent. And he is thinking about how things went down and how he kind of clung to his philosophical understanding of the world in the face of his mother wanting certain things from him as she died like pray with me Stephen and he's like no and that kind of thing so he's still seeing this kid who reminds him of his younger self also reminds him of his relationship with his family which has him thinking that way it doesn't really this book isn't about plot you know (laughs) this is a thing that happens only brother in a house full of sisters especially in the 1900s, is a fraught place to be. 
And this is Catholic Ireland where everybody has nine kids. Oh, stuff, God. You know? Just eight sisters, one cranky little atheist, question mark, brother? Uh, no, he still claims Catholicism. He just has a different approach to it. It's interesting. He's he's very concerned with like the, the, the philosophies of Aristotle and such. We will have our platonic Aristotelian digression. It's coming. It's all coming. I mean, you can't write a novel without an Aristotelian digression. No. <laughs> No, and this one is... Oof. You're going to put one in your novel, I assume. Oh, at, at least one. <laughs> maybe three or four. I'm already trying to cut pieces of my novel to make it a, a saleable length, so no. <laughs> I mean, maybe it will sell more easily if you throw in more Aristotelian digressions. Yeah, maybe so. Just maybe saying. so. I don't know. We could try it. Um. So... The next thing that happens in this chapter is he goes to Mr. DC and he's like, Mr. DC, it's time for me to get paid. But of course, he's the type of boss who makes you sit there and have a conversation. You can't just say, all right, you got my pay, you know, sit down, my boy, while I count this money very slowly and 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 lecture you about my misguided old man beliefs. Let's hear from Mr. DC, shall we? He raised his forefinger and beat the air oldly before his voice spoke. Mark my words, Mr. Daedalus, he said. England is in the hands of the Jews in all the highest places, her finance, her press, and they are the signs of a nation's decay. Wherever they gather, they eat up the nation's vital strength. I have seen it coming these years. As sure as we are standing here, the Jew merchants are already at their work of destruction. Old England is dying. He stepped swiftly off, his eyes coming to blue life as they passed a broad sunbeam. He faced about and back again. Dying, he said, if not dead by now. The harlot's cry from street to street shall weave old England's winding sheet. His eyes opened wide and vision stared sternly across the sunbeam in which he halted. A merchant, Stephen said, is one who buys cheap and sells dear, Jew or Gentile, is he not? They send against the light, Mr. Deasy said gravely, and you can see the darkness in their eyes, and that is why they are wanderers on the earth to this day. On the steps of the Paris Stock Exchange, the gold-skinned men, quoting prices on their gemmed fingers, gabble of geese, they swarmed loud, uncouth about the temple, their heads thick plodding under maladroit silk hats. Not theirs, these clothes, this speech, these gestures. Their full slow eyes bellied the words, the gestures eager and unoffending, but knew the rancors massed about them and knew their zeal was vain. Vain patience to heap and hoard. Time surely would scatter all. A hoard heaped by the roadside, plundered and passing on. Their eyes knew the years of wandering and patient, knew the dishonors of their flesh. Who has not sinned against the light? Stephen said. What do you mean? Mr. Deasy asked. He came forward a pace and stood by the table. His underjaw fell sideways, open, uncertainly. Is this old wisdom? He waits to hear from me. History, Stephen said, is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. What a killer line. It's the best part of the whole dang book, if you ask me. I'm really surprised that that isn't, that I haven't encountered that on like a bunch of Etsy merch. Mm-hmm. It would be good. It, maybe maybe we should start an Etsy store. It's time. It's <laughs> you know, we'll we'll make the annotate me daddy shorts. Oh my god, yes. And and then we'll have a whole line of of history as a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. This is a great idea. So that kind of gives you the perspective is that Stephen's views on the Jews are not entirely enlightened. He's somebody who's like they're cool, but they do their little thing, and maybe that's a little weird, because, you know, he's an Irish Catholic guy who walks down the street seeing a million bajillion Irish Catholics all day. Right. He's like, they're they're different, and they do their different things over there, but also I don't think that they are maybe disassembling the country from the inside out. Mm, exactly. Which Ex is, I mean, that passes for enlightened in 1904. <laughs> 
Yep. 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 And uh, DC uh, is also giving Stephen crap about how he spends his money. He's very like, you don't spend your money right, boy. And it's like, yeah, if you think I'm always broke, maybe you should pay me more. Has there ever been a single generation that didn't turn around and lecture the generation under them for spending their money poorly? Mm, yeah. Oh, gosh, I deal with that a lot. The old people greatest hits. Like, I don't like how you spend your money. And also, I'm a racist. And you're like, oh, have we, we've just done this forever, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm, you know, I'm 47 now. I'm trying not to become one of the old racists. I don't think I have so far. But I... I my wife tells me that if I'm worried it'll happen, I'm doing something right. Yeah, I feel like that tracks. If you're up at night being like, oh, God, am I am I going to become a monster as I age? Then you're probably yeah, you're probably fine. Yeah, we can hope. I just can't get too complacent. All right. Well, that's basically how that chapter ends. Stephen leaves with his pay and he for the third chapter wanders. He wanders down by uh, Sandy Mount Strand along the beach looking at stuff thinking about stuff, you know, as you do. This chapter is called Proteus. And in the Odyssey, Proteus is a sea god that Menelaus has to capture in order to save himself from a land he's trapped on as he's coming back from the Trojan War. I'm not always too sure how the Homer parts relate to the episodes named for them, which, by the way, those names are not in the book. Somebody, like, they're in the annotation. Oh. They're what every Joyce scholar refers to them as. Joyce talked about them in his correspondence about the book. This is how we know about them. They all have names relating to the Odyssey. These are secret chapter names. Correct. We're reading off the secret menu out here. I love this. Deep cut <laughs> secret chapter names. Yeah, but so uh, you need to know them to an extent, at, especially at other points. This one I wrote in my notes. Not really sure how this relates, TPH. I'm not. I don't know. And this was the chapter, the first time I read this book in 2008, when I was a much younger person of two outward appearances, a completely different gender. But uh, we've fixed some things since then. We've remodeled. Yes. Oh, goodness. Please excuse our mess. Anyway, (laughs) I started to realize what this book is doing. And one of the main things this book is doing, part of the reason it's so long, is it is sometimes telling you a story. But probably more often, it is being a text that signifies. So it's not about what's happening. It's about how you're being told what's happening and what you can learn from how it's being told. It's form following function just all the way down. Correct. Form is a big part of this. It's a very formalist work. And this was the one where I realized, oh, I don't have to understand every word. Stephen is pondering And that's really all that happens in this chapter. At one point, DC has given Stephen a letter, like, take this to the newspaper you write for and have them publish my letter about hoof and mouth disease. And Stephen's like, oh, this this guy, I can't deal with it. So he tears a piece off the bottom of the letter where there's nothing written and scribbles a poem onto it at one point. And that's about the most that happens. He sees a couple with their dog and the dog pees on a rock. And maybe Stephen takes a piss? It's not really clear. I love that even even the taking a piss. Is it metaphor? Is it literal? Are, I didn't catch it the first time I read the book. Are we all not dogs peeing on a rock if you think about it hard enough? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there's notes in the back and there's individual footnotes, but also explanations of each chapter. And it mentions the Stephen Pease in this chapter. And I was like, I don't remember that. I would think I would have noticed. Let me read you 
a, a short excerpt that includes Stephen peeing. I'm going to see if I can catch it when it happens. Okay. In long lassos from the cock lake, the water flowed full, covering green, goldenly lagoons of sand, rising, flowing. My ash plant will float away. I shall wait. No, they will pass on, passing, chafing against the low rocks, swirling, passing. Better get this job over quick. Listen, a forwarded wave speech. Sisus. Vehement breath of waters amid sea snakes, rearing horses, rocks. In cups of rocks, it slops, flop, slop, slap, bounded in barrels, and spent its speech ceases. It flows purling, widely flowing, floating foam pool, flower unfurling. That is the most poetic description of taking a piss I've heard in my entire life. For real. And uh, having read it to you just now, I'm like, oh, I think it starts with the dog peeing, and then he pees at the end of the paragraph. I think... <laughs> I mean, am I going to get this one wrong on the essay, on the exam? Maybe. I really want there to be more exam questions about piss in old-timey literature. Mm. That, that would be good. This book certainly offers you the opportunity to create multiple exam questions about people excreting and having bodily functions. All right. So maybe like contemplating your quarter-life crisis while taking a pee is the real sea monster we needed to conquer all along. Yeah, good grief. And we haven't conquered it yet. <laughs> So I'm I'm well past quarter life crisis and I'm still struggling. But that's basically how this ends. He journeys on. The comparison to Homer says that Telemachus learns that Odysseus is on Calypso's island where he's been trapped for years. The next thing that happens is chapter four, the beginning of part two, and it is called Calypso. Calypso had had Odysseus trapped on her island, but the gods demand he be set free. Poseidon doesn't care. He still hates Odysseus, hits him with the storm. I think the important thing is that Odysseus slept with Calypso and didn't feel good about it. That's <laughs> that's my notes. <laughs> that is some fantastic editorializing. I do my best. That is how things relate to the Odyssey. But what's really important here is we are meeting Leopold Bloom and incidentally, who she'll be off screen for most of the book, but his wife, Molly. This one has an introduction that feels more like what you'd get used to from a Victorian Edwardian novel. Oh, you know, here's here's a guy. Let me read it to you, though. Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hencods rose. Most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented urine. I can smell that paragraph. Mm-hmm. It's so visceral and yeah. slightly greasy. That's how this one starts. And that's really what you should be taking from Bloom. Bloom, where Stephen is high flown and literary, Leopold Bloom is very earthy. He's very concerned with facts, figures, things like that. And I mean, of course, this plays into the stereotype of him being Jewish. Right. Well, and also a little bit of a hedonist. He is quite a bit. He's respectable. It's not really something you're going to see in polite company. But yes, we're getting everything. And there's definitely that side. I think what's important in this chapter is that we get to know Bloom as he is in the world. This is the beginning of June 16th for Bloom. He's waking up. He's going downstairs to make breakfast. Molly's still in bed. She lays in bed often half the morning because Molly's a nightclub singer. Oh, also, that's nice. You can mm -hmm. make your own breakfast, buddy. Let your wife have a lion. 
Well, and he makes her breakfast in bed at a certain point in this chapter. What happens is he starts thinking about kidneys. He's like, oh man, I could do with a kidney. And he walks down to the shop and buys a kidney, brings it home, throws it on the fire. He goes upstairs. There's some post. Molly gets a letter from Blazes Boylan. Blazes is the boss of her band. He runs the band. I'm not sure if he plays an instrument, but he seems to kind of be in charge musically as well as managerially. He's writing to her about the songs they're going to sing. And there's a song that keeps getting referenced, Love's Old Sweet Song. Boylan is a mostly off-screen antagonist throughout the portion of this book that's about Bloom because it's an open secret that becomes more and more open that he is also having sex with Molly while Bloom's out doing his daily day. Oh. Yeah. And that happens at a certain point in the book, though offstage. We don't see it. But you just mentioned Blaze's boiling around Leopold Bloom and he gets twitchy. Okay. I was Because I was going to say, is he aware of this? It seems. It seems. But he has many peccadillos of his own over the course of this day. We will get to them. So he's talking to Molly. They seem to have a good relationship despite the fact that there's weird stuff going on. Uh, as far as their exclusivity, infidelity, yada, yada. They're talking and she's like, yeah, I liked that last book you got me. is by this guy, Paul DeCock, K-O-C-K, real author and of the era who wrote kind of sentimentalist romance fiction. Killer name, especially for a, a sentimentalist. There's like- a point when Molly, I didn't mark it, but there's a point where Molly is like, quite a name on that fellow or something <laughs> like that. But she's like, if you could get me another thing like that, um, that would be cool. I'd appreciate it. You know, over the course of your day, I'm going to be here. And he's like, yeah, I got to go do my thing. He sells advertising for the newspaper, the same newspaper where Steven works. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Molly is like, it smells like burning. And he's like, oh, my kidney. So he runs downstairs and rescues the kidney. There's a little burn bit. He cuts it off and gives it to the cat. Uh, he eats the rest. He's really delighted by the kidney. That leads to him having to poop. Pooping is vital, especially if you've just had a breakfast of organ meats. Mm-hmm. So we go with Bloom out to the outhouse. This was a huge issue. We're going to talk extensively, probably in the part two, about the censorship this book faced, which was massive and probably had the biggest effect on modern obscenity law of any work of the modern era. But for now, just know that Leopold Bloom reading a story while he sat in the outhouse taking a, a shockingly graphic shit. is that where we're it's at? not even graphic really it's just you know it's just the fact of the matter yeah he's pooping I, I feel like a turd plops out and like then he tears the sheet out of the old magazine that he's been reading and wipes his butt with it this was very very not done My first instinct was to giggle about it, but then I just remembered that you couldn't show toilets on television for how long? Oh, probably till the 70s or 80s. It was it was a long time. We were just Uh like, no, no downstairs stuff. Absolutely. This is 1922 when he's writing or publishing it. The immediate post-World War One era and people are not ready. What's also interesting to me from a modern perspective is that I'm reading about this man walking out to his backyard and pooping in an outhouse and wiping his butt with an old magazine. Like, wow, this book seems sort of not that long ago. And then all of a sudden it seems a thousand years ago. You're like, right, indoor plumbing. One of the many reasons I'm glad I was not born before I was born. Oh, I think about that kind of thing a lot. I mean, as a trans woman, uh, I probably would have been in in a bad place. I I probably was born too early as it is. 
Yes. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's a good idea to be born trans today. Uh, but, you know. Indoor toilets and trans rights. All of the things that we are thankful for. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So that's basically how that chapter ends. And now Bloom is going out. He's going out on the town and he will not return home until after midnight. Uh, he has a lot of errands to run and a lot of things he's going to stumble across. The first chapter we come to after the introduction, and these are really always referred to as episodes by the scholars, and I was totally like, remember to call them episodes, and that ship has sailed at this point. They're chapters. Sorry, every Ulysses scholar listening to this podcast. You shouldn't have listened to a podcast about your favorite book called Didn't Read It. <laughs> Uh, if you have serious complaints about the way that we're handling this, why are you here? Mm. Yeah, maybe to become our nemesis. I've been paying attention. I'm still waiting for my applications. I thought they would come rolling in. So mm. hopefully they're out there. Someone, please. I need a nemesis. Yeah, a podcast called I Did Read It. Yes. Thank you. Start a rival podcast. It'll be great. We'll be the Pepsi and Coke of book podcasts. Yeah, totally. I have a bit that I'm going to read. There it is. Okay. We've taken our we're hitting the town. Yes. The first place Bloom goes is to the post office. And at the post office, he picks up a letter addressed to Henry Flower, not Leopold Bloom, who has been receiving correspondence from a woman he found through the Lonely Hearts classifieds in the paper. Her name is Martha, unless it's not. They have been going back and forth and teasing each other, and they totally talk openly of their spouses, such they have. This is the first hint we get that, like, yeah, Bloom may feel a way about getting cuckolded by Blaze's Boylan, but he is not without sin, you know? Right. He's got his own little side projects, as it were. Also, I love when people do bad pun alter egos. Mm -hmm. It's the best. Yeah. Henry Flower is up there with Carlos Danger. So. <laughs> the next thing he does is he goes by a church and watches a bit of a morning Eucharist. And this is interesting to me because what you generally have in England at the time is a conflict between Protestantism and Catholicism. And when we say Protestantism, we're largely talking about the Church of England. I don't know how religious you were raised or how... The listeners, were you raised religious? Maybe you'll get some of this, but... Let me explain it to you like you don't really know too much. That's good. Yeah, it's always nice to like brush up on the Protestant-Catholic divide. Okay, so there's continental Protestantism, which started with Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door. And that kind of Protestantism is a much more significant break with Catholic doctrine and Catholic approach to the liturgy and basic rights of church. The Church of England was Henry VIII being like, I want to get a divorce. The Archbishop of England is now the boss of my entire church, the Church of England, and you are going to give me a divorce. And the guy was like, the Pope's a long way away. I guess I'm going with this. And that is how the Church of England began. Now, I was raised in the modern Church of England known as the Episcopal Church here in America. Me too. No kidding. Yeah, my grandfather was an Episcopalian reverend. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you know a lot of this stuff. I don't even need to tell you. Catholic light, baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had gay bishops and stuff way before the Catholics. Of course, the Catholics don't let their bishops have sexuality at all. <laughs> right. Honestly, my favorite part about Episcopalianism is that they kept all of the pomp and circumstance. Mm. Like, I'm a sucker for it. Give me the stained glass. Give me the give me the incense. Give me the, the waving things around. It's pretty. My wife was raised an evangelical Christian and the... Whenever Christian things come up, the the massive difference between her 
ecclesiastical upbringing and mine always kind of blows her mind. And then it turns, it blows my mind in the other direction. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't send, sing 500 year old hymns? You're like, give me the idolatry. And then she's like, we used to sing this. And I'm like, I think of that as like old time Appalachian folk music. And she's like, that's church music to me. <laughs> <laughs> there ain't no grave versus a mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> yeah. So Catholic light. So, and that's what we're bloom is a jew so he's being dropped into all of this and he's an outsider to the whole thing he doesn't have a dog in this fight he's just kind of standing back watching all of his compatriots and all of his countrymen have completely different religion than him and going huh isn't that interesting here's bloom in the middle of a church service while it's you know standing in the back to get some quiet time and kind of watching the eucharist take place which is where the priest comes around and gives you the wine and the bread that represent the body and blood of jesus christ during the last supper i come from a church where they represent that the catholics say it turns into jesus every time the priest blesses it transubstantiation versus uh, extended metaphor yeah i'm much more a metaphor person a thing that I get fake nostalgic for because I never experienced it, but that pops up in old books all the time is the ability to just wander into churches all willy nilly and just hang out for a little while and yes. then leave again. Yes. I want to do that. I see it in in the sixth sense. The little boy goes to the church. That's a movie from maybe 20 years ago. And he's hoping the ghost doesn't follow him in. Sorry if I just spoiled The Sixth Sense, <laughs> the a, original spoiler movie. It's a little late for that, I think. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's interesting because the, the door's just open. Nothing's going on. He just wanders in. Yeah. I did not grow up in churches like that. No. I don't think they do that in the States, really. Mm, it's a shame. It is. But so here's Bloom. Women knelt in the benches with crimson halters around their necks, heads bowed. A batch knelt at the altar rails. The priest went along by them, murmuring, holding the thing in his hands. He stopped at each, took out a communion, shook a drop or two. Are they in water? Off it, and put it neatly into her mouth. Her hat and head sank. Then the next one, a small old woman. The priest bent down to put it into her mouth, murmuring all the time. Latin. The next one, shut your eyes and open your mouth. What? Corpus. Body. Corpse. Good idea, the Latin. Stupefies them first. Hospice for the dying. They don't seem to chew it, only swallow it down. Rum idea, eating bits of a corpse while the cannibals cotton to it. He stood aside, watching their blind masks pass down the aisle one by one and seek their places. He approached a bench and seated himself in its corner, nursing his hat and newspaper. These pots we have to wear. We ought to have hats modeled on our heads. They were about him here and there, with heads still bowed in their crimson halters, waiting for it to melt in their stomachs. Something like these Mazoth. It's that sort of bread. Unleavened shoe bread. Look at them. Now I bet it makes them feel happy. Lollipop, it does. Yes, bread of angels, it's called. There's a big idea behind it, kind of kingdom of God is within you feel. First communicants, hokey pokey penny a lump. Then feel all like one family party, same in the theater, all in the same swim. They do, I'm sure of that, not so lonely. In our confraternity, they come out a bit spreeish, let off steam. Thing is, if you really believe in it, Lord's Cure, Waters of Oblivion, and the Knock Apparition. Statues bleeding, old fella asleep near that confession box, hence those snores. Blind faith. Safe in the arms of kingdom come. Lulls all pain. Wake this time next year. There's so many... I just... <laughs> He kind of nails it. He yeah. kind of nails it. He's like, oh, I guess I guess it feels good for them, you know, and makes them makes it easier to get through life. Right. Everybody has their little bit of ritual that makes it feel meaningful. And as long as it feels meaningful, that's all that matters. Yes, exactly. And I think that's 
Bloom doesn't have a lack of respect for it. He's just kind of like, huh, so that's what you guys do. All right. It's very sociological, anthropological. Yes, I agree. Anthropological, for sure. Yeah, he's studying it like a scientist who's never seen it before. I've come upon an uncontacted tribe. Look at them, the Catholics. That's a really interesting reversal of roles, too, if you think about the era and the way in which Jewish people were treated and the way that, mm. that their lives were treated as this exotic, othered, those frightening Jewish people and all the, all the crazy Jewish stuff they're doing mm -hmm. off in the corners. And... This is a, a reversal of that uh, For sure. perspective. Absolutely. It's giving the marginalized a voice and seeing how they see it, which I think might be part of what drew me to this, because it really is like a lot of outsiders view of society. Now, it's a century old, so there's an extent to which it doesn't always map onto my experience. But, you know, as an outsider myself, there are often things that I have an interesting perspective on compared to what cis straight people think you know we'll talk about that later whether the straights are okay in this book i'd say probably not the straights are never okay never that takes care of that chapter the lotus eaters the lotus eaters is uh an island where odysseus goes and the people the people on his boat not him they eat the fruit they drink the wine they don't want to leave they kind of don't want to do anything they're sedate, they're calm, and Odysseus is like, oh, we can't have this. I got to drag these guys back on the boat. Well, what's the lotus here? Obviously, it's the Eucharist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's the metaphor Joyce is drawing here. Next Pacifying the masses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so to see it through Bloom's eyes is somewhat perfect, you know, because he is outside enough but and of course he can then look at it compare it to his own society his own religion and say oh they do that we do this mm, yeah maybe both are kind of silly you know the next chapter is called hades and hades is greek hell right mm -hmm. it's also satan and where satan lives are both hades so that's fun and what happens is odysseus has to go to Hades to speak to some recently dead folks. Sometimes you just got to go chat with some recently dead folks. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's just a part of your usual errands. It's It's been a part of society for a very long time. Now, are they speaking back? You know, <laughs> now in, in the book, they in, in the original Homer poem, they do. In this book, we do not have a visitation from the dead. Not really. Metaphorical visions later, much later. <laughs> it must feel like this book's going to be a million years long because we've been talking for a damn long time and <laughs> we got a damn long way to go. But that's why we read it for you. Well, that's why one of us read it for you. Mm. I did nothing. I sat around twiddling my thumbs for several weeks while Drew fought her way valiantly through this text. And listen, I didn't read the whole thing either. So, you, know. <laughs> you don't you don't have to admit that. They can't stop you. I don't care. <laughs> I've always I've always been someone who admits the things I don't have to admit and I would be willing to bet that's why I have four jobs and I'm still struggling to pay my bills. In fairness though, it's a real power move. You know? <laughs> You're just like, look, what do you want? What are you going to do? It was a way I had to learn to live so that I could respect myself enough that I didn't cap myself. So, you know. Oh, see, that was your problem was the part where you expected to respect yourself at the <laughs> end of the day. We don't allow that in this country. No, it seems we don't. So I'm really blowing it. <laughs> what you should have done is gone and started working for a defense contractor. <laughs> it's all true. 
and then gotten upset when people bullied you about it on the internet. And I'm try- oh my goodness, are we talking about that dude? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this is trans gossip. How do you know about this? <laughs> All I'm saying is what? Anna Mardall's bills are paid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good for him. You know, whatever. <laughs> I have no idea where he is now, but yeah. <laughs> Wow, haven't thought about that dude in a minute. <laughs> As- asides, not even I expected to somehow introduce to our James Joyce podcast, and yet here we are. And yet here we are. Good job. Let's uh, let's turn from the funeral of Anna Mardal's public life to the literal funeral of Patty Dignam. <laughs> That's what Hades is about. Patty has died. R.I.P. Patty. I don't remember how he died. I feel like he was stricken. You know, it was 1904. You just got stricken. Sometimes you just woke up and got struck. I feel like he must have had a stroke, but I might be remembering that wrong. He's dead. He's not coming back. No. And Bloom is going to the funeral for a guy he knew, and he's rolling with some friends, and uh, one of the friends happens to be Simon Daedalus. So this is when we meet Stephen's dad, who, you're going to love this, another one from the old man playbook. He sees Stephen walking down the street at one point and is like, my son's running with a bad crowd. I don't <laughs> I don't like that Buck Mulligan guy. He does not seem like a serious person. Uh, He's got no good friends. One of the other guys, I forget which one, is just like, oh, there he is, Simon, your son and heir. And Simon's like, oh, Stephen. Oh, what's he doing? Oh, he's walking down the street, huh? Figures. So we're off to a funeral. Patty uh-huh. has died. He has. I feel like this is, again... Bloom standing outside of standard Catholic Protestant culture and going, hmm, he has some thoughts. Burying him, we come to bury Caesar, his Ides of March or June. He doesn't know who is here nor care. Now, who's that lanky looking galoot over there in the Macintosh? Now, who is he? I'd like to know. I'd give a trifle to know who he is. Only man buries. No, ants too. First thing strikes anybody. Bury the dead. Say Robinson Crusoe was true to life. Well then, Friday buried him. Every Friday buries a Thursday if you come to look at it. Oh, poor Robinson Crusoe. How could you possibly do so? Poor Dignum. His last lie on the earth in his box. When you think of them all, it does seem a waste of wood. All nod through. They could invent a handsome beer with a kind of panel sliding. Let it down that way. Aye, but they might object to being buried out of another fellas. They're so particular. Lay me in my native earth, bit of clay from the holy land, only a mother and dead-born child ever buried in the one coffin. I see what it means. I see. To protect him as long as possible, even in the earth. The Irishman's house is his coffin. Embalming in catacombs, mummies, same idea. They're so particular about the way they want to be buried. Yeah, yeah, he's just like, well, what if we just put you in this tray and then threw you onto a fire? So that is basically what Hades is, is bloom at a funeral pondering the customs of the Irish and the Catholics. And And here uh, we see how the Irishman mourns his dead. Yeah, more anthropology, absolutely. The next chapter, Aeolus. Odysseus gets a bag of wind from Aeolus, master of winds. And in that spirit, we go to the newspaper office. I think I know what the bag of wind is going to be. Oh, you're you're 100% (laughs) correct. It is old men. Old men sitting around ranting and detailing in graphic detail many recent to pretty well past events of the constant Irish rebellion against the hated crown. 
honestly, I thought the bag of wind was going to be farts. I really thought it was going to be farts. But old men also make sense. Old men also make sense. We've got an old man theme building here, so I understand. Yeah. It's not farts this time. No, not this time. Not this time. I'll be all right. They're all hanging around the Freedman's Journal, which is a newspaper of the era. The Freedman's Journal and the Irish Homestead were both published out of the same office, and we encounter the editor who is a grumpy old man. He is talking with a bunch of his cronies, just talking about the war and the days of the terrorist actions and, you know, the glory of Sinn Féin and all this stuff. So this is a pro-Irish liberation newspaper. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah, yeah, they're Republicans. Yes, for sure. Bloom is trying to do some work. He is trying to sell an ad, and he's going back and forth between this advertiser and the office and trying to get the advertiser to agree to something so awful he calls the office on the phone and in 1904 there weren't a lot of phones around you know right it's a struggle for him to get to a phone he gets to the phone somebody says editor blooms on the phone he says tell him to go to hell (laughs) he's like i'm trying to make you money (laughs) yeah oh yeah and he comes back he actually says, this is the ad I could get keys to agree to. He doesn't want three months. He only wants two. And and uh, the editor says, you know what, Bloom? You can kiss my royal Irish arse. Tell him that. Tell him if he doesn't want the three months, he can kiss my Irish arse. And then they go off to the pub. And Stephen Daedalus is around for all this, by the way. Mainly the chapter focuses on the folks sitting there jawing. Bloom is happening in the background for the most part. And so is Daedalus. He doesn't have that much to say. Continuing with all the threads of anti-Semitism, it's not terribly subtle, I guess, the contrast of Bloom trying to accomplish something practical that will actually benefit the newspaper, but is also, you know, mercenary, dollars and cents. Yep. And these old windbag idealists Mm -hmm. who can't bring themselves to focus on the work needed to keep their newspaper afloat so mm-hmm. that they can continue broadcasting their opinions around. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, idealists getting in their own way and giving him a hard time for doing the mercenary work that he's been asked to do. Yeah, that's his job. And I have always, as a journalist, been on that side, the bloom side of the equation, trying to get things done while people above me who have enough money that they don't have to care how the magazine does go back and forth about X and Y and Z and waste entire afternoons talking my ear off. And then are like, why didn't more posts go up on the website today? It's like, what was when was I going to do that, man? You know? Yeah. But this is a very formalist chapter. And what it is, is it's interspersed throughout with headlines, just as a newspaper at the time would be. If you look at vintage newspapers, they would do a lot of headline work and a lot of sub-headline work. You'd have big, giant headline, and then five or six sub-headlines that communicated some important main points. You could keep on and read the whole story, but a lot of people didn't, just like today, where a lot of people look at the headline, look at the subtitle, and move on. So <laughs> Much to our collective detriment. Well, for sure. Let me read you some bits of this chapter, let's see, and we're gonna, I'm gonna define the headlines. Headline, links with bygone days of yore. Grattan and Flood wrote for this very paper, the editor cried in his face. Irish volunteers, where are you now? Established 1763. Dr. Lucas, who have you now? Like John Philpot Current, pshaw. Well, J.J. O'Malloy said, Bush KC, for example. Bush! The editor said, well, yes, Bush, yes. He has a strain of it in his blood. Kendall Bush, or I mean, Seymour Bush. He would have been on the bench long ago, the professor said, only for, 
but no matter. J.J. O'Malloy turned to Stephen and said quietly and slowly, One of the most polished periods I think I ever listened to in my life fell from the lips of Seymour Bush. It was that case of fratricide, the child's murder case. Bush defended him. And in the porches of mine ear did pour. We'll pause for the reading for a second for me to point out that that is a line from Hamlet. By the way, how did he find that out? He died in his sleep. Or the other story, Beast with Two Backs? What was that? The professor asked. Headline, Italia Magistra Artium. He spoke on the law of evidence, J.J. O'Malloy said, of Roman justice as contrasted with the earlier Mosaic Code, the Lex Talionis, and he cited the Moses of Michelangelo in the Vatican. Ha! A few well-chosen words, Lenahan prefaced. Silence! Pause. J.J. O'Molloy to coat his cigarette case. False lull. Something quite ordinary. Messenger took out his matchbox thoughtfully and lit his cigar. I have often thought since on looking back over that strange time that it was that small act, trivial in itself, that striking of that match, that determined the whole aftercourse of both our lives. Footnotes tell me this is certainly in the manner of Charles Dickens as of Great Expectations or David Copperfield, but it's not really certain who James Joyce is quoting here. We get the point. (laughs) These guys are just talking. They're sitting around talking smack. None of it really matters. They're not doing work. I assume they're getting paid, although I would think the professor isn't. He's just chilling. You know, is this just like the bar for these dudes? Maybe at the end of the chapter, they will go down the bar. Turning the workplace into their social club, as old men have done forever. Mm -hmm. So the next chapter is Lestragonians. The reference to Homer's Odyssey is that the Lestragonians are giants who try to eat Odysseus and his men when they dock in that harbor. And they actually dock outside of the harbor, which is the only reason they're able to get away, because the guys start bombarding the harbor when they all run. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is just Bloom walking around Dublin at lunch hour looking for a place to eat. He stumbles into a hotel, I believe it's called The Beacon, and he's like, Ugh, let me <laughs> give you a little bit of Bloom reacting to The Beacon. Oh, sorry, it's the Burton. Stink gripped his trembling breath. Pungent meat juice, slop of greens. See, the animals feed. Men, men, men. Perched on high stools by the bar. Hats shoved back at the tables, calling for more bread. No charge. Swilling, wolfing gobfuls of sloppy food. Their eyes bulging, wiping wetted mustaches. A pallid suet-faced young man polished his tumbler, knife, fork, and spoon with his napkin. New set of microbes. A man with an infant sauce-stained napkin tucked around him shoveled gurgling soup down his gullet. A man spitting back on his plate, half-masticated gristle, no teeth to chew, chew, chew it. Chump, chop from the grill, bolting to get it over. Sad booster's eyes, bitten off more than he can chew. Am I like that? See ourselves as others see us. Hungry man is an angry man, working tooth and jaw. Don't! Oh, a bone. That last pagan king of Ireland, Cormac, in the school poem, choked himself at Slutty, southward of the Boyne. Wonder what he was eating. Something galaptious. St. Patrick converted him to Christianity. Couldn't swallow it all, however. Roast beef and cabbage. One stew. Smells of men. His gorge rose. Spittoon sawdust. Swedish warmest cigarette smoke. Reek of plugs. Spilt beer. Men's beery piss. The stale of ferment. Couldn't eat a morsel here. God, that was so visceral Mm. and also off-putting and also i sympathize greatly with watching people eat badly and being like oh god do i look like that when i eat (laughs) yeah yeah for sure for sure like oh your table manners are so bad it made me (laughs) self-conscious 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. He ends up at another place, Davy Burns Pub, where he is chosen to eat. Glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the wine-pressed grapes of Burgundy. Sun's heated as, seems to a secret touch telling me memory. Touched his sense, moistened, remembered, hidden under wild ferns on Houth, below us, base, sleeping sky, no sound. The sky, the bay, purple by the lion's head, green by drumleck, yellow towards, yellow-green towards Sutton. Fields of undersea, the lines faint in brown and grass, buried cities, pillowed on my coat, she had her hair, earwigs in the heather scrub, my hand under her nape, you'll toss me all, oh wonder, cool soft with ointments, her hand touched me, caressed, her eyes upon me did not turn away. So he starts fantasizing. Is this a memory or a fantasy? I believe it is a memory. I believe it's him and Molly. This is one of many scenes where this kind of thing starts happening. If Bloom's having a good time, he starts thinking about sex. Well... Whomst among us. Yeah, for real. You can see reading passages like this why people freaked out about this book in 1922 or 1920 or 1919 when little excerpts were published in literary mags in advance. It was a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, a huge problem. Look, we all know that a good pub will make you horny, but you're not supposed to write about it. Well, and I think the you're not supposed to write about it is really the core of a lot of this. You know? <laughs> we all know it happens, but we'd like you to stop reminding us of that. It's stressing us out. So that's basically what we've got for Les Dragonians. Bloom found a place to eat that he liked. It's it's nice. I'm happy for him. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to go to a pub. Yeah, for real. And get horny about it. <laughs> Next is uh, Scylla and Charybdis. This, this is one of the more famous chapters of the Odyssey in which Odysseus has to get through the original rock in a hard place. The Scylla is a monster that lives in a cave up a hill that slopes sharply up from the water. The Charybdis is a whirlpool, a intensely sucking whirlpool that has drowned many uh, an unwary boat. And the question is, how do you get between them? And that is what he has to navigate. This chapter in the book is a Stephen chapter. Stephen is at the National Library and he is talking about his theories about Hamlet with a bunch of literary figures, George Russell and a couple other people who really mattered on the uh, literary circuit circa 1904. And so is he like kind of punching above his weight a little bit? To an extent, they are kind of like, hold on now, youngster. This is where you see the big platonic versus Aristotelian conflict. Daedalus is the young Joyce. He's very concerned with what is, what can be touched, what can be encountered. Platonic philosophy focuses on the idea that there is somewhere an ideal form of the thing. The thing, whatever thing you're talking about, there's an ideal form of it. It could be a table. It could be a thought. It could be a mollusk under the sea. There's an ideal perfect form of it. And everything else is just a more or less imperfect copy. Okay. So what that becomes in philosophical discourse is we're constantly worrying about whether things are good enough. And Joyce is not concerned about whether they're good enough. He wants real shit. Right. And I think some of this has to do with Joyce having recently lost his mother. He's having an argument about how Shakespeare's personal life influenced Shakespeare's literary works with all these literary figures of that era in Ireland and they're all very hold on now youngster and they're just like chill out my dude you don't seriously think 
his inability to be faithful to his wife and the problems they had with their kids at home and all this was what was motivating what he wrote. And Daedalus is like, yeah, yeah, what of it? You going to disprove it? Disprove it. Go on. That's so funny because that is the dominant mode now to the point where you have to work really hard to get people to leave authorial biography out of it. Like you, it takes work now to be like, no, no, no. Okay, I, I get it. But not every book is about the author's real life. Yeah, isn't that funny? I thought about that too. It's it's interesting. Stephen was very modern. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Very ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. And then Bloom is, again, at the National Library. He's trying to find an old copy of the ad that he's trying to rerun. Because, of course, this is a time when these sorts of files are not on your computer. Right. You know, he's trying to get Keyes' ad out of an old newspaper. So he's there and they're all kind of looking down on him. Here's something I wrote these guys sitting around arguing high-flown nonsense about things they can't know relating to literary figures from centuries past. Meanwhile, Bloom is getting on with the business of trying to feed his family, and everyone looks down on him and is rude to him. There's a lot of class rage to be had in this book if you know where to look. Yeah, and forgive me for harping on it, but I cannot let go of the undercurrents of Bloom's Jewishness, too, tied into all of this. He's been tasked with these very practical financial matters, and now he's being looked down on for doing his job the christians of europe were too good to fool with practices they thought of as intrinsically dishonorable and one of those big practices was lending money yep and it's almost laying it on like too thick except that considering the time and the audience this would have been very subversive to be like hey Have you noticed? Have you noticed what's happening over here in this corner? Well, and what's wild to me is like, do we only see it a century afterwards because we are so much more attuned to it? Did people completely miss this at the time? I'm sure they must. Many probably did. One of the biggest lessons of literary conversations, like the ones that we have on this podcast, is you cannot make something so blatantly, stupidly obvious that a lot of people won't miss it. Oh, for sure. There are so many things in just basic mainstream entertainment that people miss. And this is extremely hard to read and to parse. It's been a lot of work over the past few weeks, you know? Yeah. And so we've got Scylla and Charybdis. How is this chapter like being stuck between a rock and a hard place? Well, I think that's really a reference to Daedalus trying to argue his point to a bunch of these old guys who are very set in their ways. What's interesting is the next chapter, Wandering Rocks, is another alternate way you can go to get out of Circe's Island, which is where Odysseus is escaping when he has to dodge the Scylla and Charybdis, and he doesn't go that way. Well, our Wandering Rocks chapter barely features Bloom or Daedalus. They're not really in it. Huh. This is a chapter about different minor characters. It is 18 miniature scenes and a coda in which a procession of the Earl, who was like running Dublin at the time, walks by all of these people on the street. It's fun though. Bloom, yeah. Bloom's at a, at a book stand and he's buying a book for Molly and we see him for a sec. I don't remember if we see Stephen at all, but we see his family. We see his sisters. They're trying to sell his books because they need money. Because they, they're low on food. Does he know that they're selling his books? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, he does not. He has not been back to his parents' house in a bit. So he doesn't realize this is all occurring. There's some interesting stuff in this one. And I do want to read you a bit here about Lenahan, who's another dude from kind of Bloom's crew. And he's telling a story about Bloom and Molly 
and a time he was around them and some things that went down. Uh, Delahunt of Camden Street had the catering and yours truly was chief bottle washer. Bloom and the wife were there. Lashings of stuff we put up, port wine and sherry and curacaos, to which we did ample justice. Fast and furious it was. After liquids came solids, cold joints galore, and mince pies. I know, McCoy said. The year the missus was there, Linehan linked his arm warmly. But wait till I tell you, he said. We had a midnight lunch, too, after all the jollification, and when we sallied forth, it was blue o'clock the morning after the night before. Coming home, it was gorgeous winter's night on the Featherbed Mountain. Bloom and Chris Callanan were on one side of the car, and I was with the wife on the other. We started singing glees and duets. Lo, the early beam of morning. She was well-primed with a good load of Delahunt's port under her belly band. Every jolt the bloody car gave, I had her bumping up against me. Hell's delights. She has a fine pair. God bless her. Like that. He held his caved hands a cubit from him, frowning. I was tucking the rug under her and settling her boa all the time, know what I mean? His hands molded ample curves of air. He shut his eyes tight in delight, his body shrinking and blew a sweet chirp from his lips. The lad stood to attention anyhow, he said with a sigh. She's a gamey mare and make no mistake. Bloom was pointing out all the stars and the comets in the heaven to Chris Callanan and the Jarvie, the great bear and Hercules and the dragon and the whole jing-bang lot. But by God, I was lost, so to speak, in the Milky Way. He knows them all, Faith. At last she spotted a weeny weeshy one miles away. And what star is that, Poldy? says she. By God, she had Bloom cornered. That one, is it? says Chris Callanan. Sure, that's only what you might call a pinprick. By God, he wasn't far wide of the mark. Lenahan stopped and leaned on the river wall, panting with soft laughter. I'm weak, he gasped. So this is him talking about basically molesting Bloom's wife while they're distracting Bloom talking about the stars. Uh-huh, yeah. I've never heard such a good written description of the Monty Python, but she has such great tracts of land mm. joke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah, it's really clear all these guys lech after Molly so hard and she married Bloom and then and then seems like she's still a little loose with it. I mean, the Blazes Boiling thing might just be the beginning. She just wants to have fun. And who can blame her? Honestly. Yeah. I mean, they all seem very fun. And if you can get away with it, why not just kind of frolic with them all? Yeah, I don't really know. It's one day. It's so interesting because it's one day. It's like when Richard Linklater did Dazed and Confused and everybody was like, oh, the slacker guy made a movie that actually focuses on something the whole time. Well, if you watch Dazed and Confused, it's one day. Right. And it's you have to do so much work. Yeah. You have have to to create all this backstory and possibilities for the next day and none of it's ever going to be explored. You spend a lot of time projecting both forward and back in order to derive narrative satisfaction Mm -hmm. from what you're given. That's part of what makes it so riveting. Anytime there's something with this tight a constraint on the timing Mm. is you can't resist, you know, Molly is so engaging to speculate about, you know? Yeah, and she's mostly off stage in this novel. We get stories like that about her. We get her in the first Bloom chapter, and she's going to have her own chapter at the end. But we don't really get to know her as well as we do the other characters. So from the way the others react, we sort of do in a way as well because of the way all the all the men in bloom circle and bloom the way blazes boiling and all this more molly yeah well, well she certainly gets her time on stage we'll we'll get there <laughs> i'm excited about it well that's all i've got for this time around we can finish the book on the next one all right well thank you so much for being here with me today absolutely and thank you out there to all of our listeners 
I hope you have enjoyed the first half of James Joyce's Ulysses. We will be back with you next week. And until then, if you can, this week, this month, this pay period, maybe consider supporting a living author, because they could sure use the help. Bye! Didn't Read It was created, written, and edited by me, Grace Todd. Kaylee Hughes is our publicist and producer. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at Didn't Read It Pod, or reach us via email at didn'treaditpod at gmail.com. For source notes and further reading, as well as a list of all existing episodes, please visit our website at didn'treaditpod.com. We are recorded in Richmond, Virginia, with special thanks to Black Iris Social Club and Pescatrio Publishing. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please consider leaving us a review or rating on your preferred podcasting platform, or just tell a friend. If you did not enjoy today's episode, we are currently accepting applications for a full-time nemesis. Our intro music is Books, written, performed, and recorded by William Albritton.